Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. So then your glutathione levels get low. You start building up heavy metals, mold toxins, halogenated hydrocarbons, and different environmental toxins. And you need help to get out from underneath that. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Today on The Less Stressed Life, we have return guest, Dr. Christopher Shade, who has a PhD in environmental mercury chemistry and is a renowned expert on mercury heavy metals and human detoxification systems, which he came with for the first interview. His focus today is on the human aspects of mercury toxicity and the functioning of the human detoxification system. He has also researched and developed superior liposomal delivery systems for the nutraceutical and wellness markets and his clinical analytical techniques for measuring human mercury exposure are unique and more comprehensive than anything in the industry. And when you type in liposomal delivery in Google, guess whose name pops up first, really on the entire first page, it dominates it, an article called Liposomes as an Advanced Delivery System for Nutraceuticals by Christopher W. Shade. So we got the guy here. If there was a guy to talk about liposomal delivery, welcome, Dr. Shade. Thank you, Christine. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to take off from where we ended talking about mercury toxicity and now talk about delivery methods to get our detox supplements in. Yeah, you bet. So let's just start with the basics on what is liposomal, first of all. Yeah, so liposomal delivery means you're using a liposome to get something in. Now, first, what's a delivery method? So a delivery method is a way to get a compound from outside your body to inside the body. That simple. So a capsule is a delivery method. Stirring something up in water is a delivery method. But usually when we start talking about delivery methods, we're talking about advanced ones because the regular ones aren't working very well. And so a liposome is a way to take a compound that's not absorbed well, like something like glutathione, and put it into a little fat sphere. Now, we call it a fat sphere, but it's like a balloon. And the skin of the balloon is made out of the same things that your cell membranes are made out of, called phospholipids, the dominant one being called phosphatidylcholine. 
And so we make this sphere of that, and it holds a little droplet of water, and the water's got the glutathione in it. And when we take that into the mouth, and if we make them right, and we make them really, really small, called nanoliposomes, when you put them in your mouth, you'll start absorbing them right through the oral cavity, right into the capillaries below the mucosal membrane, and right into the blood. And then some you'll swallow, and that'll get absorbed in the stomach and upper GI. So it's a way to cheat the normal mechanisms, which would have to go down to the small intestine and then work their way, their diffusion, or if you have some sort of transporter for the compound, and that's usually slow and poorly absorbed. And so now we have a fast way in through the liposome. Now, it's also got a sister particle. Now, you'll hear me call these particles a lot because they're little spheres suspended in water. And so the liposome has the outer layer of phospholipids and a water drop in the middle. We use the liposome for water solubles like glutathione, vitamin C, B-complex, NMN, the NAD precursor. But then if we're doing a, a fat soluble like CBD or vitamin D or vitamin A or these metabolic compounds like resveratrol, then we're going to dissolve these in a drop of oil and wrap that in a layer of phosphatidylcholine. So now instead of having a water center, it's got an oil center, and that's called a nanoemulsion. Same deal, we want to make them really small, and we make them really small, they absorb right through the oral cavity. So when we take the compounds in this way, instead of having a low, slow absorption, we have a fast and very efficient absorption. So we get more total in, and we get it uh, focused into a short amount of time. How small? We're going to talk about processing and all the things, but how small? Right on. So under 100 nanometers, and that's what's called a nanoparticle, but nanotechnology is just something less than 100 nanometers. And that was a term that the catalyst industry came up with. And they were making nanoparticles of catalytic minerals like titanium dioxide. And they found that when they were very small, they were very reactive and they got good catalytic activity. And so they didn't want people calling something that was 900 nanometers a nanoparticle. So they made this cutoff of 100. Now, people get a little afraid of that. They're like, oh, I heard nanoparticles are bad and they get in your body and you can't get them out. So mineral nanoparticles have to be in one camp and lipid nanoparticles are in a different camp. And lipid nanoparticles you actually make. And so you make these little particles called chylomicrons when you're absorbing fat through your GI. And in the first lining of the GI, in your endoplasmic reticulum, you take the fats and you wrap them in a layer of phosphatidylcholine and send those into lymphatic circulation to bring the fats out to the cells. And those particles range under 100 nanometers down to about 65 or 70 nanometers. And so you have enzymes to deal with all those called phospholipases. And so actually, this is a very natural way to bring things into your body. And they mimic the way that you move fats around and you have enzymes for dealing with them. So I'm just <laughs> I'm cutting off at the past this question of, well, nano is nano a problem. But yeah, under 100 nanometers. And that's a range where these emulsions that were very cloudy and milky-like, because milk's actually an emulsion. Then as they come down under 100 nanometers, the particles get so small that light doesn't bounce off them anymore. They're actually smaller than the wavelengths of light. So light just goes through them. And the dispersion there of liposomes or nanoemulsions becomes transparent. And that also is the range at which the absorption becomes very fast. So my first exposure to nanoparticulate delivery systems was when I was in college, I was interviewing researchers, and they were trying to do cancer 
therapies for via nanoparticulate delivery, because then the body doesn't look at them attack. This was how it was described to me. Very, very small. And I'd love to know if you know, like they said, if you know, so many of these fit on a pinhead or whatever, right? And so it's so small that the body doesn't kind of react negatively to those particular drugs. Now we're talking about a little different topic because we're talking about things that are useful that the body wants to use. But is that an appropriate way to describe it? Yeah. So you have this system in the immune system called the reticuloendothelial system. And these are like they're like macrophages and they're scavenging particles out of the bloodstream. And one, when they're big particles, they see them and they scavenge them. Now, if they see too many, they might sound an inflammatory alarm and think that there's some sort of infection in there. So you want to make them small enough to avoid the reticuloendothelial system. And those are these sizes below 100 nanometers that slide past that system. And that was one of the things that they're talking about. The other reason they use them in cancer therapies is these particles tend to accumulate in areas where there's already an inflammatory problem. Now, that's actually good for us on the nutraceutical level and good on a pharmaceutical level because those inflamed areas are vascularly leaky. And so the particles tend to get into the tissues there. And so if they're using a chemotherapy, they tend to accumulate where the cancer and that associated inflammation is. And instead of just acting willy-nilly anywhere in the body. So it's a way of helping to concentrate the effect in one area. Now we're doing therapies on areas, often areas that are inflamed. So this actually, you know, helps us concentrate in those areas. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned something that I'm going to pull out, which was, you know, glutathione doesn't get absorbed well. So let's talk about, and I think you brought this up, but let's make sure this is clear. Maybe we can say it like this. What's the efficiency that it's normally absorbed at? Because what you see in liposomal products is that the dosage looks smaller because it's probably being absorbed better. So when you take something in a non-liposomal form, you're taking a larger amount because we're hoping for X amount of absorption. So can you yeah. compare and contrast? Let's use glutathione. I love glutathione. So let's talk about how it should normally get absorbed, why it's not very efficient in absorption, if that's relevant. And then like you brought this up, but if there's an efficiency, how do you know what's getting absorbed otherwise versus liposomal? Okay. There's a bunch of topics here. I know. And I think I might work backward into them. And so, well, first let's just talk about absorption. So to be absorbed across the GI tract, you either need a transporter, like, you know, there's magnesium, there's zinc, and boom, we got a transporter, it brings it in. There's an amino acid, there's a transporter that brings it in. That's called active transport. Otherwise, you need passive transport, and then you have to be soluble and diffusive across the membrane. So you have to be kind of hydrophobic. And so a lot of compounds like berberine, very insoluble and doesn't diffuse very well. So you need to take a lot to get just a little bit into the blood. Now, glutathione is made of three peptides. Three, well, it's a peptide made of three amino acids. It's made of glycine, glutamate, and cysteine. And cysteine has the sulfur residue that does all the work. It's the antioxidant, it's the metal binder, the toxin binder. And when that goes into the stomach, the same enzymes that would chew up your steak into amino acids chew up that peptide into amino acids. So most of that is broken down into the amino acids, and then you can absorb the amino acids, but then you got to put it all back together. So the trick with glutathione is getting it in intact instead of breaking it all down before it goes in. 
So when it's in the liposome, if you can get the intraoral activity, you haven't seen any of those digestive enzymes. If you go into the stomach, you still the enzymes can't get inside the liposome, so the liposome can still absorb into the blood. So you're cheating around the things that would normally break it down, and you're getting past the need for a transporter. So it acts like a passive diffusion device, and it's protecting the compound from the enzymes that are going to break it down. Now, how do you measure all this? There's a lot of different ways, and we have a lot of different measurements on different compounds, and you'll hear a lot of really stupid things out there like, oh, this liposomal vitamin C gets you 98% absorption. That's just stupid. And all liposomal technology gives you 100% absorption. That's just stupid. So it depends what your absorption of the baseline compound is and what your absorption of it in the nanoemulsion liposome is. So say we have something that only has a 2% bioavailability normally, and then you put it in a liposome, you have 50% bioavailability. You just had a 25x increase in absorption. So that's the case for when we looked at quercetin, 25x. So now we need, you know, for the same blood level, you need 25 times less. Or really what the advantage is, you get it in in a short amount of time, you get all the metabolic activity of the quercetin. Then that's easy to measure, because there's no quercetin in your blood normally. Mm. So we can measure your blood and say, boom, there's the quercetin when we give you the liposome. And boom, there's quercetin when we just give you powder. And we look at it over a period of time, concentration over time. That's called a pharmacokinetic study. The pharmaco is the levels of this compound in the blood and the kinetic is over time. And that all gets integrated into something called area under the curve. You draw this curve, it goes up and then it starts coming down then that's a good way to go when there's not a lot in the blood. But for glutathione, there's a ton in the blood already. And so you have these small amounts swimming over a large amount, and that's kind of tricky. And the analytical chemistry for the glutathione isn't so super clean that, that you can always distinguish the background from these doses coming in, but we're trying to do that now. On the other hand, there's these like models of GI uptake, something called a CACO2 study. So you get like a beaker within a beaker separated by a little membrane and you grow out a layer of intestinal cells on that membrane. And you can put stuff in one end and watch it diffuse through to the other end. So you put it in the inner beaker and watch it come out through the outer beaker. That's one of the ways. And then you can just dissolve a normal compound and then you can put it in a liposome and see how much faster it is. So we've done that with B12. We've done that with vitamin C, with glutathione. But you don't have all the effects that go on in the body. For instance, with glutathione, there's no transpeptidases in there that are breaking it down. So it just all gets in there. And then, you know, you, yeah, you get advanced absorption from the glutathione versus it just diffusing across the membrane, but you don't have all those enzymes breaking down the native glutathione. So you don't exactly get the right multiple of absorption there. So there's a lot of different things that go into trying to predict what your change in, it's called your relative bioavailability is. Some of these things are easy. Some of these things are hard. NMN we're working with now that becomes NAD really hard because even you do that CACO2, the CACO2 cells metabolize this stuff. A lot of them will use it and turn it into a million different things. So now you got to measure the whole metabolome that's coming across there. And that's just at the forefront of what we understand in our scientists. I'm trying to work with James McClellan and some of the other NAD figureheads on how to figure all that stuff out. 
Mm, yeah, that makes sense. In summary, for anyone, you can yeah. measure things like quercetin, and they saw a twenty-five percent increase from liposome because twenty-five fold. Yes, twenty-five fold. Yes, and fifty percent versus two. Easy to measure. That was a six-fold increase. Mm. You know, other things, especially if they get metabolized, are harder to do. Right. So as a side note, from a clinical perspective for me with my clients, and I'm just telling you the applicability in the world, right? To the listener, because people check their vitamin D more often than some of these other nutrients, right? It's a thing that we're, that's popular. And if someone, and there are people like this, one, people are taking not great doses of vitamin D commonly. So that's the first problem. (laughs) Right. It's like a joke. So once you up upregulate the uh, or increase the number or amount the I use of D to an actual changeable amount. And then if someone still doesn't improve, then I love doing the experiment of cool, let's put you on this liposomal vitamin D from these guys, because I love to see the change in what happens. And so far, I've had good results, but like, I've only gotten to measure that a few times. But that's yeah. that's the option, right? You know, it's certainly we could start there too. But it's kind of fun to see how it how it changes. And some people really yeah, we've seen a lot that. of people, you know, they're doing you know, four or 5000 I use a day, and they're just flat lines, you know, I'm still stuck around 31, you know, and then they jump into the nano and boom, comes up for them. You know, and I think fat soluble nutrients and minerals to me make the most sense to deliver liposomal. I'm sure all of them do, but like we need this. I always think about the cell having this little phospholipid layer and how those really struggle to get across the phospholipid layer. So this is like some of the most important nutrients to get across liposomally. And so it's interesting. And I think vitamin D as a side note is such an interesting being an interesting creature because, you know, it goes through, it's got a lot of steps in that machine, right? And the last step being the kidneys. And so it's like, well, why aren't you absorbing it? I don't know. But if your cell structure kind of sucks from inflammation, right? Because it kind of dries up. Or all your cells. I think in general, all potential cells. Yes, GI is a problem, right? GI is a problem. But like, in if people have systemic inflammation, it seems like that layer of the cell, they're not getting minerals and fat soluble nutrients yeah. into the cell yeah. because it seems like they're drying up that phospholipid layer, which, you know, the fatty acids help reduce the, it just sort of seems to go together quite well. And that's always what I see clinically. So anyway, D being a very important one from a fat soluble perspective, because when we're thinking about you were talking about dropping some things in water and then surrounding them with a liposome. And then you're talking about the fat soluble ones dropping in an oil and then surrounding it with a liposome. And I'm thinking, how do you do this? When it's that tiny, <laughs> it's hard to imagine. So let's really talk about processing. syringes. Yeah, one right. <laughs> time until you've done 20 trillion of these, you know, in a single dose. Well, let's uh, talk about processing you know, it, to create yeah, liposomes. Okay. Now, there's only so much I can talk about because, you know, that's why we're so good at this is because we know how sure. to do this really well. But you look at a water soluble, okay? And imagine you have like a beaker of water and you dissolve your glutathione in there. Then you have your phospholipids, and you've got this purified phosphatidylcholine that's been purified adolescent, and maybe you'll fluidize that in a little ethanol and drop it into, with stirring, into this water beaker of glutathione. And they actually spontaneously form spheres around the water there. So it's drinking in little droplets of all this glutathione-laden water. And then there's forming multiple layers. It's like an onion layer of, of these phospholipid membranes, phospholipids, water, phospholipids, water. And we got to get them small. And so we take them from there. We put them through high-pressure homogenizers that break the big multilayer spheres into small monolayer spheres. So the technical terms, there's 
multilamellar vesicles, MLVs, are the big ones that are first made, the onions, and we chop them down to small unilamellar vesicles. So small being less than 100 nanometers, unilamellar meaning one phospholipid bilayer surrounding that water droplet. Now, in that, we cannot get 100% of the glutathione into that. You know, at best, we can get half into these spheres and half is on the outside. Uh, and that's how the liposome is made. Now, with a nanoemulsion, remember, you have the water and then you have the phospholipids. You're going to put all the fats and the fat solubles in with the phospholipids when you dissolve them in the ethanol. And now we're going to disperse them with stirring into the water. And they self-organize because the fat wants to hide from the water so the fat grabs the phospholipids. The phospholipids have fatty acid tails, so fat tails, and water-soluble heads, the phosphocholine heads. So the fats all go in the, the fatty acid tails point into the droplet, and the water-soluble heads point towards the water, and they surround the water droplet. So that all automatically happens. And then we go and we use high-pressure shear to break those down into small little droplets. The key is to get the ratios, everything exactly right, and create a center of that particle that maximizes the solubility of the compound that we're putting in there. Okay. We're talking about choline. We're talking about phoscholine. We talked about this a little bit last time. Why do we use choline? Let's talk about why we're using choline. Let's talk about phoscholine versus other forms of choline. Right. So choline is, you know, it's present in meats, there's a ton of it in liver, and it is the top part of the phosphatidylcholine. And so the phosphatidylcholine is this big thing that's you know, making up your membranes and your membranous organelles, your mitochondria, endoplasmic reticulum, need it all over. And your body will take fatty acids and link them together onto the choline heads and make these phosphatidylcholines. Now, we can get the phosphatidylcholines already made intact, extracted from lecithin. So move back one step where you get the lecithin is coming from oil pressing. When they're pressing tons of oil, they put a little water in it, and phospholipids are present with the, the other fatty acids and triglycerides in the oil, and the water drops out all the phospholipids into this stuff called lecithin. So lecithin, you know, it's used as a homogenizer, or you know, to uh, to make chocolate, to make breads, to make ice cream. It's used in all this food production, and about fifteen percent of it is phosphatidylcholine. The rest is all kinds of other junk. And we want the phosphatidylcholine, and so that's removed by ethanol solubilization, and then you take away the junk, and then you go through a bunch of steps of purification with chromatography, and you end up at this 90-plus percent phosphatidylcholine that we get from these guys who's – we get it from the same guys who made all – in fact, they make all the injectable phosphatidylcholine for pretty much the whole world. It's used in all kinds of pharmaceuticals. It used to be the injectable lipostabile and essential. It's the same injectable grade stuff that we get from them. Then, so it's great to get phosphatidylcholine because it already can be incorporated into the membranes as it moves through your body. Your body can use it in the membranes. It can break it down into, to for, you know, for making neurotransmitters. It can break it down, use it for energy by using the fatty acids. And it happens to be this vehicle for making all these things. And in fact, it was used as a therapeutic for the liver for decades over in Germany. And then in the U.S., there was this whole like PK protocol and phospholipid therapy, big thing for mitochondrial therapy, just by replenishing the phospholipids in all your membranes and membranous organelles. And I say the membranous organelles because there's way more surface area of membrane inside the cell 
in things, making up things like the mitochondria, the endoplasmic reticulum, the Golgi apparatus, and the nuclear envelope. Those are all made of membranes, and there's more surface area of them than there is the cell surface membrane. So phosphatidylcholine is just great for doing all those things for us. I love it because I love PC. I've seen so many changes in people from doing PC just with skin. It's yeah. like something I always use. But why are... Skin? Yeah, skin. Yeah, it's beautiful for the skin. You could do it topically if you're using ours. And it's just amazing what it builds. And, you know, your bile is partly PC. And you're dumping PC into the bile all the time to fluidize the bile and to uh, keep the bile from dissolving the rest of the cell and the, from dissolving the, the bile tree. And so your liver cells are always donating phosphatidylcholine and losing choline from their membranes into the bile flow. And so that's why it was always known as this big liver reparative. It helps regenerate liver because of this constant loss of PC. It's amazing. And, you know, you were talking about the food sources of choline. Why do we struggle so much to have enough choline? I mean, it's estimated that pregnant women don't have enough choline whatsoever. I mean, that's like a a thing that's trying to get out there into the world now, right? I wonder what the thing is with our digestion assimilation, or if it's just what's happened in our bodies that makes us not have the choline we need or because of toxins, we're using it up all the time, you know, to make bile. And I think one, our use and degradation of it all the time, but I think it's because the organ meats have so much choline and we're so focused on the muscle mm-hmm. and it's probably why, but then in pregnancy, you have just a massive protein load mm-hmm. and people don't always keep up with the protein load. So the protein load, getting enough protein, having a varied protein, especially you're pregnant, you want like bone broths, organ meats, you know, a lot of egg yolks, but like free range, really, really filled things. Mm-hmm. And then they got that TMAO controversy now that's such a red herring. Everybody's afraid of choline. I actually want you to talk about that because, and I'll, I'll use a story that will help. So I have this friend who's an optometrist and she's taking a nutrition course because she's interested in gut health and how it's affecting all of her dry eye diseases and whatnot. So she's sending me these slides late at night while she's taking her class about like, she knows I'm talking about choline all the time and she sends me a slide about TMAO. And so then I go and it's like, well, this isn't about, you know, phosphatidylcholine. This is related to other forms of choline. So will you address TMAO controversy real quick. I will, <laughs> because it's a big thorn in my side. And, you know, really, it's about all forms of choline. And, you know, phosphatidylcholine can break down into choline. So it's a, a source of choline. But, you know, there was these guys who released this big paper correlating TMAO, which is a byproduct of choline, in the blood to heart disease. Oh, this is a big deal. Maybe the TMAO is causing heart disease. Well, try and decide how to lay out this argument. But then there was, you know, an immediate response. And in fact, my favorite response, and you can go Google it, and it was a letter to nature is something fishy about TMAO. And the response starts with, oh, yeah, TMAO causes heart disease. What's the biggest spike in blood TMAO levels that you get after you eat fish? It's the biggest source of TMAO. Mm. But fish is this heart healthy thing. So how does that job? So that just starts to unwind, like, how does this argument fit together? Then you go back to the guys who wrote the paper on heart disease and TMAO, and you see that they have a patent on a test for TMAO. Great. They can wind up the fear of TMAO. They can sell a 
shit ton of TMAO testing. And everybody's going to be like, oh, my God, my TMAO levels are high. I have to track this. Yet every time, yeah, well, I better stop eating unheart healthy thing. I'll just eat fish. Now the TMAO levels are really high. All right. So the guys who wrote the response, something fishy about TMAO, were, you know, these guys know this stuff up and down. I think they're Northern Europeans. And they started dissecting this thing. And they said, look, there may be a correlation between TMAO and heart disease, but it's not a direct correlation. In the heart disease, a lot of these guys are heavy meat eaters. And meat eating shifts your microbiota. I mean, you know this, right? Mm -hmm. Plants, it's the firmicutes, bacterioides, mm -hmm. the general thing. But plant-based and meat-based shift things. This is the biggest reason to get a plant-rich diet is the microbiome. Oh, the second, you know, that and the phytonutrients, all a big deal, right? When you're dominantly meat and low vegetable, you shift to a microbiota that makes a ton of TMAO. And it's not the TMAO that's causing the problem. It's the microbiota and the poor diet that's causing the problem. And the secondary thing is the TMAO. So that's the whole story. Mm -hmm. I think this was the 90s, wasn't it? It's kind of taken some traction. If it's showing up in nutrition classes now, right? It's like, oh, I guess we're going to teach this. I started hearing all this stuff in the early teens. Like, I don't think that was... In the 90s. I think okay. that came up pretty recently okay. because all of a sudden it was coming across my desk that we're all killing each other. Uh, you know, we're killing everybody with this phosphocholine. Oh my God, the choline. It's like, wait a second. Like, mm -hmm. if you're choline deficient, everything's going to fall apart. That's how I feel. If you're choline deficient, like, nothing is going to work right. So, like, this is a moot point, but people don't really understand choline because it kind of came on the scene. It didn't get popular until. When did choline get popular or when did it get discovered? Wasn't it discovered kind well, of later? Choline, choline was big in the 90s, 80s and 90s. Like, wow, we need more choline. Choline was discovered a long time ago. But, I, you know, I remember like enzymatic therapy, having these high choline supplements for the liver to build liver strength. You know, and that was I was shopping for those in the late 80s, early 90s. I wonder why we didn't keep that. And I'm going to make a quick note about the TMO discussion reminds me of something else that we don't realize, but is a thing and we don't make a poo-poo about it. You know, there's natural trans fats and meats as well. And then there's like yeah. artificial ones, right? And so we freak out about artificial ones and no one says anything about the stuff in meats because it's not actually related. It doesn't actually create disease, right? In the stuff that's naturally occurring in the foods per se. And so what you're saying is it's not the thing. It's like the microbiota not being healthy. Um, yeah. And the diet, not having enough plants to metabolize and make short chain fatty acids to hit your gut on its own. Yep. So anyway, it's kind of important, but it's also a challenging topic. So it's easier to just say, watch out for this sometimes. Now on the choline train for another moment, it always seems like choline is coming from soy and sunflower. And sometimes that's an issue because of some people have issues with soy, at least in my field, because I'm working with a lot of people with allergies. So I mean, are there any other sources? Because I only see it as sunflower and soy. And I know it's from lecithin. So we get these sunflower or soy lecithin. But do they use other sources of choline in the market? No. The reason is they come from large scale oil pressing operations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, I'd love to have, you know, flax phospholipids, uh, you know, some omega-3s, you know. It's you just need a lot of oil pressing to get a little bit less than that. So it's a byproduct of this big food manufacturing mm -hmm. world. 
Sure. And nobody's doing enough of the other ones to do it. Yeah, you can get it from canola, but I don't think anybody's rushing to get canola. Mm-hmm. You know, you're left with soy or sunflower. Mm-hmm. And there is uh, krill phospholipids are on the market now, but, you know, there's some issues with those two and the stability of them. And, and, and there's some other fish-based ones, but none of that's really worked itself out yet. Yeah. It's a real thorn in my side when someone has the rare exceptional person that has a sunflower and a soy allergy, which does occasionally happen. But Yeah. You know, and you're not going to be able to go and get just raw lestin from the health food store and give it to them. There's got to be too much protein in there. But in these, there's no protein left at all. And we've had them assayed and there's like zero protein. So a lot of them that have those allergies do fine. There's rare ones that you know, it's like, is it the vibratory frequency of this? Like, what is happening here? Because there's nothing in there for you to react to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've had a lot of soy allergic people take the soy stuff and be fine. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about whether there are certain nutrients that cannot be delivered liposomally. Can all nutrients be delivered liposomally? Well, it's a question of can you get a relevant amount in? And so we started for the first couple of years, it was just vitamin C, vitamin C with lipoic acid, glutathione, and GABA. We just had those, and we just ran. And then CBD came along, and then the whole world came along. We started doing everything. And we've gotten really sophisticated and being able to stack a lot of different compounds together, like our AMPK charge used to be called Keto B4-6. You've got berberine, resveratrol, crested, dim, luteolin, and cinnamon in there. And there's so many AMPK activators that it flips you into ketosis in about an hour and a half. You see, you measure your blood ketones and stuff. It's like, wow, we got a lot of compounds in there. But, you know, I couldn't get any one of them in in strong enough doses to do that. So I had to get a bunch of different ones. So it comes down to can you match the solubility of the compound to the particle system to get enough of it in? So theoretically, you could do it with everything. But a lot of compounds you get to just limits where you got to get grams of this in. Maybe it's, you know, you already got 30% absorption. And so you take a couple grams of it and it works fine. So it's not worth doing. But theoretically, everything could be done. Are there things that shouldn't be done? Probably. But, you know, those are probably compounds you shouldn't be taking much of anyway. Why did you start with vitamin C, GABA? Was it alpha lipoic acid? Was there a reason that you thought, let's just see? guy. And so I started with glutathione was the most important thing. And mm-hmm. so we did glutathione. And then one of the guys I was working with was like, hey, at this one place we work, we did C and lipoic acid together. And I was like, okay, cool, because glutathione is for detox. Lipoic acid is an NRF2 upregulator and turns up all the enzymes for detox. So those two went together. Then shortly afterward, one of my doctors was like, hey, I got all these very reactive people. And they take stuff and they have all these neurological things, you know, maybe GABA could help them. But when we take GABA, it just doesn't work. Try liposome. So we did. And that was really good for like Lyme and mold people who, you know, you're trying to detox, but you show them a bottle and they're reactive. So that calmed things down. So we give them GABA and then we give them whatever detox supplements and they would be fine with that. And at first, I thought that was all just calming down neuroreactivity, but there's GABA receptors on the immune cells too. And so that dims down the hyperreactivity of the immune cells too. So that's why the GABA then went in there. And from there, you know, CBD came in for obvious reasons. And then we just sort of exploded doing all kinds. Got it. Well, that's really helpful because I have some of those people. They look at the bottle and they react to things. Um, Really serious stuff. 
TBD and GABA are your two things that are, Judy Mikovits calls them dimmer switches on the immune cells. And you see what they do best with. Some people are reactive to CBD. And then you can get them both together. We have our CBD Synergies AX for anxiety. And that's got GABA, CBD, and a couple of uh, things like Skullcap, Calming Herbals all together in one shot. I use that one a lot. Recently, I was working on breaking up some biofilms. Like this is old bloodborne biofilm stuff. It kind of reared its head back up. And when I do that and I take stuff to break it down and immune stimulators, you just wind up a little too much inflammation. You want to tamp that back down. Then I hit that CBD AX and that bring me down, clarify everything. Mm, interesting. I'd like to talk about CBD later. I'm going to finish my liposomal conversations because <laughs> CBD is such a weird, challenging thing in the supplement industry and trying to recommend sometimes. And I think we're coming on the other side of it. So when we think about liposomal, we're also thinking about pretty concentrated, right? More absorption. But if we stepped back and we thought, oh, it seems concentrated, but it's really absorption. So what about liposomal versus reduced? Because I think about reduced being concentrated. So liposomal versus reduced is the conversation because there's reduced glutathione versus liposomal glutathione. Oh, all right. Those are actually two separate conversations altogether. Mm-hmm. So reduce is one of these funny words because people are like reduce concentration or like I should have less of it. What's going on? Mm-hmm. That's redox, reduced and oxidized, oxidation reduction, the redox potential. So it's an antioxidant. And so there's a reduced form and an oxidized form. Everybody's selling you the reduced form. I mean, this whole like, like well, you're buying oxidized uh, glutathione somebody else, somewhere else. <laughs> Nobody even sells it. Now, when they make a liposome, they screw it up and they oxidize it all, but they're putting in originally reduced glutathione. So reduced means it's glutathione as a sulfhydro group. Oxidized would be glutathione disulfide. Now, this is going on in your body. Your body is using glutathione as an antioxidant against things and in the process, oxidizing it and forming glutathione disulfide. So you got some free radical, you reduce it like glutathione peroxidase, takes the electrons of glutathione, donates it to the free radical to neutralize it, and then you have glutathione disulfide. Then you have a enzyme, glutathione reductase, to re-reduce it. So you're always cycling glutathione like that. But it's important to keep it almost all reduced. This is something that goes wrong as people get sick and there's inflammation. So that's how that works. And so, yeah, you have to be using reduced glutathione in the supplement. Then there's liposomal. So like if you bought cetria glutathione and capsules of that, that is reduced glutathione in a capsule. And then Godspeed, you get some through. All right. Then the liposome is dissolving that in water, packaging it in some of these liposomes and getting them to do the delivery for you. So you get more through into the blood. Now, when people don't make it right, you will have a lot of it oxidized and hydrolyze. So oxidize, you're making the disulfide, and then hydrolyzing, you're breaking off the hydrogen and the sulfur group into hydrogen sulfide. And so many of those bad glutathions out there, you smell them, they smell like rotten eggs. Mm-hmm. And really heavily, and you taste them, they're like, oh my God, that's a ton. And the people will tell you, well, if it doesn't smell like that, it's not glutathione. So if it doesn't smell like hydrogen sulfide, it's not glutathione, that's not true. If you take raw glutathione and put it in water, it's not much. It's a little bit like methionine. There's a little bit of sulfury, but it's not hydrogen sulfide. That's a breakdown process over time. And a lot of people don't make these things right. It's really precise. You have to control what's called the activity of water by modulating glycerin and ethanol and your phospholipid levels so that there's not so much water. It's breaking these molecules apart. 
And I've measured liposomal glutathione that the worst one I measured had 2% of label claim left, meaning it was all oxidized and then broken down into all these different metabolites of sulfur. People wonder why they have so much reactivity uh, to some of the glutathione mm-hmm. out there. I mean, some people do, even to the most pure glutathione, but a lot of people, it's a witch's brew of shit that's in there. So I've measured 2%, 6%, 12%. 30% is usually the best that I measure out there. There's only one other brand that usually that tests pretty well. This is a good conversation because one of the questions I had a listener ask was who's, you know, in my field, she said, well, how about capsules versus liquid liposomal? And you've been kind of answering it here. So to recap, before I let you answer that, we've got Sertria, which is like a trademarked type of reduced glutathione, right? That they can put in a capsule. So thanks for bringing that up because I see that all the time on labels. So is the answer, if something is glutathione and in a capsule, is it automatically reduced regardless of label or not? Yeah. I've never seen anybody sell anything of the reduced glutathione. Okay. So it's a labeling. Really on the open market, there's only two sources out there. Anybody who's good buys Japanese glutathione. Cetra is one of them. It's made by a company called Kiyohaku. It's a excellent product. I use the one made by Mitsubishi that used to be called Kojin. Now it's called Opitac. It's also excellent. They both make excellent products, but the taste, smell, and flavor profile of the Opitac is slightly better. So I use Opitac. I actually, I make products for bioceuticals in Australia and they sell Cetra too. So I make Cetra for them. You know, great stuff, but either one, you put it in capsules, you know, Godspeed to get it past your digestion. Because it should be wrapped in like a little fatty thing to get. You're going to break it all down. And so you got to wrap it in something. Then we get to the question of capsules versus liquids. In a liposome, there's no such thing as a capsule liposome. But I think there's some sold, right? Technically? Yes. People sell them. Okay. Just to be clear. sells one. And what they do is they put a liquefied lecithin in with glutathione in the capsule. And... What they're hoping will happen is that the capsule will break open in the stomach and the phospholipids that are in that lecithin will form spheres and incorporate the glutathione into them. Mm. Now, it's a very much a wishing game with a liposome because the water, the glutathione is going off into the water phase in the stomach and slowly the phospholipids are forming these spheres, how much gets in there versus not get in there. It's not a great way to go for the water solubles. However, for the fat solubles, there's something called a self-emulsifying delivery said system. And we do this with CBD. It's called our CBD Synergies PN. And it's CBD and curcumin and boswellia and one or two other things, uh, beta-caryophyllin, that all, when you drop that, into water, it self-assembles because the oil solubles all want to be wrapped in the surfactant system. They're not stable. So they actually search out the phospholipids to stabilize themselves. So we do that with that. We have a microbe manager, which is artemisinin and berberine and and Mm -hmm. propolis along with anti-inflammatories. That's for microbes. And we have one with a zinc ionophore, zinc quercetin and luteolin complexes. And so there are compounds that this works for, and there's compounds that this capsule approach doesn't really work for. It's not really good for the water side. Mm, Got it. Perfect. That answers that 
quickly and clearly. So you've alluded to this a couple of times, but you mentioned this because we've been talking about antioxidant levels and stability, et cetera. And I think you've answered it in different words, but I think it'll, we'll come back around. How do you maintain antioxidant levels and stability with the processing that happens liposomally? Oh, it's very easy. Keep the oxygen out. And so you make really good equipment and you use inert gases, argon or nitrogen, and you bubble those through the liquid, you know, the water, the glycerin, the ethanol, you bubble those through, it's called sparging, to purge off all of the oxygen. And then you throw all your compounds in there, you bubble it through again, then you mix them all, you keep all these vessels covered in this blanket of inert gas. And then the mixing, it's not like you're pouring together vessels and stuff. You know, it's piped from one to the other. And so it keeps this inert atmosphere. All that mixing goes on. It's piped into the homogenizer. It goes into its receiving tanks and the receiving tanks have a sparge of the oxygen-free air going through there. And so you just protect them from oxygen. And then you bottle them. When you take them over to the bottling, you have the same thing. You pre-fill the bottles with argon. Argon's good because it's heavier than air and it sits. If you fill a bottle with it, it sits down into it. Nitrogen kind of goes up and diffuses away. So depending on what we do, we use argon or nitrogen, usually argon. And, you know, if you know what you're doing as a chemical engineer, it's easy to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm imagining you as a very nerdy scientist with a lab coat (laughs) on a different day. Okay, on that note a little bit, you made me think of this when you were saying the sources of glutathione, and I was thinking it before you brought it up. You know, I think naturally people would say, like, where do we even get these antioxidants to use in supplements? Like, how do we distill this down? I mean, what are the sources to get a supplemental glutathione? I mean, you gave us the name of the companies, but how is this product? How are they um, making it? You know, a lot of things in the supplement world are made by fermentation. So you got these bacteria growing and you'll select ones out that overproduce something. You know, we don't have to go in and genetically engineer them. You just grow a bunch out until, oh, hey, this one over here makes, you know, tons of glutathione, and then we're going to extract it off of that. I mean, you could synthesize the glutathione, you know, the way they make amino acids, you know, and put all the amino acids together, but it's better to just extract it from bacteria that are growing and then purify it out of there. But, you know, the question more broadly is, what are you supplementing? Where would you get glutathione from? So, you know, is it come from carrots or is it, you know, from broccoli? In antioxidants, there's endogenous and exogenous antioxidants. So exogenous outside the bodies, vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin E, you're getting that all from food sources. And endogenous are ones that are produced in your body of enzymes that make them. And that's glutathione, superoxide dismutase. Enzymes that work with those like glutathione peroxidase, glutaredoxin, thyroidoxin, thyroidoxin reductase. You have a whole system of endogenous antioxidants, and it's actually more powerful than the exogenous antioxidants. Now, here's a case where as you run down and you have chronic inflammation, your load of glutathione is getting swept away and your synthesis is getting downregulated. Inflammation turns down antioxidant. Uh, production. There's a reason for that because localized inflammation, like say you cut yourself and you get an infection in there, you're going to come in with your white blood cells, your macrophages, your killer cells and stuff. Your little army is going to come in there. You're going to create, you know, kind of try to wall it off with collagen. And then you're going to go and you're going to attack these microbes with pro-oxidants. 
You're going to throw peroxide at them, hydrochloric acid, you know, bleach, superoxide radicals. You're going to burn them up with prooxidant. And while you're doing that, and that inflammation is happening, you turn down your own antioxidant uh, you know, production so that you can make it a net peroxidant thing. And then when that's all killed, you switch everything around, clean it up, and the antioxidant and the high antioxidant potential is necessary for regeneration of those tissues. So when you're healthy, you're going up and down like that. But then chronic inflammation is chronically turning that down. And then you're chronically building up this load of toxins because glutathione does a bunch of things. And, and when it's dealing with free radicals, it actually recycles itself. But it, when it's dealing with toxins, it is swept out of the system. So then your glutathione levels get low. You start building up heavy metals, mold toxins, halogenated hydrocarbons, and different environmental toxins. And you need help to get out from underneath that. Now, normally, the stressors should hormetically turn up your detox system. But if this has been going on and low and slow, inflammation and poor nutrition, you just get under there, under this weight of stuff, and you're just stuck underwater. And you're bringing in supplemental glutathione to pop up, give you extra resources to get back up on top of things. I'm going to put a flag in the ground there and just reiterate that Dr. Shade is saying <laughs> chronic inflammation is a domino effect that now allows because we're turning down our own defenses. Our body's always trying to protect us. But when we like make it a, an acute inflammation is one thing, you know, it's a protective thing, but a chronic inflammation, is this domino effect where now we've downregulated all these things that we should use and that allows everything else to build up. And before you know it, we're just like a hot mess of a problem, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, yeah, it's a very technical term. And this is why after years and years of being ill, I find it takes more and more effort to get better, right? You have to supplement those endogenous things. Yeah, right. Yeah, I had someone kind of... You're really healthy. You don't have to do that. It's actually all the phytonutrients you're bringing in. And, you know, now maybe you're supplementing quercetin and resveratrol, things like that, that like they trigger your system to go up and keep those levels up there. But when you're under the gun or when you're like, I'm going to mount a big detox here, you need some extra gun with the glutathione. So I don't take glutathione every day. You know, I take it when I'm under the gun, like if I'm under the weather, it's big for the immune system. If it's like, oh man, it's time for me to detox. Or if it's like, yeah, it's time for me to detox because I partied all weekend. Those are the times when I use supplemental glutathione. Yeah, I think that's a good other flag in the ground is uh, detox is always happening. And sometimes you need it more than other times. And so you don't always have to chronically be on things. And I think, I mean, I'm just reiterating what you're saying in different words. And that's how I operate as well. It's like, these things make me feel really good when I'm sluggish, because things have been building up because crap builds up because we just live a lifestyle like that. If we're kind of being normal human beings, typically, right? Like, we can't escape it all. So we just have to give it some support every once in a while so yeah. it can do its job a little bit better. Yep. Yeah. And when we do that, then we give, you know, all these crutches to help get all this stuff out. Mm -hmm. So if Joe Blow wants to create a supplement company, there's no regulation really around validating liposomal delivery, right? Like most supplement, I mean, I think this is always the true. People always say like, what's a good brand? I'm like, what is a good brand is when a brand has good company integrity <laughs> and produces yeah. good products and tests them. So anything to say about that? There's nothing else validating it, right? Obviously, that's why it's on the market as such. I mean, I know when you put something on the bottle label, it's supposed to be in there. It's not necessarily there. So there's regulation for the supplements and the content in there. And that is the law that if you say there's 
50 milligrams of glutathione per serving, you should be able to measure 50 milligrams of glutathione per serving, not just when it goes out the door, but for the whole period that you say it's stable. Ten years ago, that wasn't necessarily the case. You know, the thing that they said was in there may have been in there, may not have been in there in the junkie companies. The pro companies had it in there. And some pro companies, like Pure Encapsulation, was just a company built on, you want this pure in a capsule, we guarantee it's there. Like, now that's not really enough to make things exciting because it's the law. Pretty much everybody does that. Now, these fly-by-night companies, it may or may not be in there. Like I said, I measured all this glutathione. are all broken down. I'm telling you, it probably was in there when they released the product. It just broke down afterward. So then if they say the liposome size is this, there's this much encapsulation, the absorption is this, do they have any validation of that? Most people don't. I mean, there are so many companies you could look and they'll say, oh, liposomal absorption gives you 100% absorption, or let's not be so fantastical, 98% absorption. And it's just like, what evidence do you have of that? And how do you know it's true for your product? So a good company should be running studies on their product. I've already said some of these compounds are harder than others, and you use different ways to validate it, but you're always trying to figure this out. But then you should definitely, and unfortunately, we're the only maker on the market that has this technology in-house, but you should have the sizers in-house. We have three liposome sizers, the laser technology, and then we've had electron microscopy done up at UC, uh, University of Colorado, to validate that our sizer is doing the right thing. And we have that in the specification. So every product that's getting made, all right, batch number 20043 of glutathione is coming out. The first two liters come out of the homogenizer. We take it over to the sizer that's right next to it and say, oh, okay, is it within 50 to 90? You know, the specifications. Yes, it is. Is it not? Uh-oh, something's wrong. Go in there, you know, is water right, this and that, you know, oh, tweak that, put the pressure up, boom. All right, we're right on. So every batch is coming in, out is the same size. And that's really important because the absorption is dependent on the size. So if you as a practitioner are getting this kind of response from this dose of CBD, you don't want my next batch to be three times as high and you get three times less bioavailability or you get it, but it takes four hours to get in instead of 30. You want to get the same effect every time you need that predictability because I'm giving you a therapeutic. And that predictability comes from all the testing that we do. And then the understanding of how much bioavailability that we get comes from the pharmacokinetic testing that we do. And we're always expanding all of that out. In fact, we have a super exciting clinical program going right now where we have 50 people going through a three-month program where we have a month on predominantly detox with some metabolic character to it, a month on predominantly metabolic with some detox character, and then a month on just mitochondrial building. And we're doing a whole epigenetic age profile before and after mm. with epigenetic markers on AMPK, sirtuins, telomeres. We're doing blood markers of AMPK, sirtuins, NAD, clotho, mTOR, all this before and after this three-month intervention. So it's going to be super exciting to start getting that kind of data out of these things that have this promise. Like I said, I got this thing with 40 milligrams each of berberine, resveratrol, quercetin, dim, and cinnamon, and it puts you into ketosis in an hour. Like that's the yeah. promise of this stuff. Right. That, let's like, see what it's doing. I had not seen that. So my brain did say, what? 
when you said that the first what time. What did he just say? So I thought we'd better get back to that because it's crazy, you know, but we've taken all these people and we measure the blood ketones before and then over the, you know, every 30 minutes and oh, over about 60 minutes, you'll go from 0.3 to 0.8 or one, you know, it's like an instant. It's an, now it's called, we used to call it keto before six. So you can be keto by day and then eat carbs at night. And now we call it AMPK charge because it was too fantastical to believe so the doctors wouldn't use it. Now all the cardiologists use it because it's AMPK thing. Well, I was going to ask some different questions, but now I just really want to know why you created this, why it works, right? Why does it work? And how do you think, well, one, I think the first thing I was going to say is, can I be invited to part two of the study that you're doing right now, the three-month one? (laughs) Um, Anyway, but why does this keto product work and how is the use suggested? Because this is actually totally off from anything I was expecting to talk about. I'm like, what is this? Yeah. Well, first the why, because Joe Mercola made fun of me. That's why. (laughs) Taunted. Paleo FX. He comes up and he freaking squeezes my love handles that were there then and not now and goes, this is going to kill you, Chris. And I'm like, Joe, you just freaking squeezed my fat in public. Like, that's horrible. And so he's like, You're lucky the paparazzi wasn't there, guys. Just kidding. Oh, I know. Terrible. <laughs> right, right. Uh, the, the keto paparazzi. And so he's like, Chris, you got to do all this, you know, and because he was all into mTOR blocking and autophagy at the time. And so was, I'm like, okay, Joe, I'll listen to you, you know, because, yeah, this is getting too big. I am, I'm getting too thick here. And so I start talking to him every night. He's going to have me on this intermittent fasting program for 30 days and then a four-day water fast. And I got to minimize all my protein. I got to do all this. And, you know, I get into day five of Joe berating me. And I'm like, motherfucker, I'm going to get around this in the lab. And so I start looking up what compounds, you know, are mTOR blockers. And this, I didn't even know what AMPK was at the time. And so I find these compounds and I'm like, all right, let me see if I can get them to this particle system. And I'm like, I can only get so much of this. Let me just stack them all together in one particle. And I'm taking it, you know, and then my son is a type one diabetic. And, you know, just on a whim, he had some keto strips there for urine and I pee on it and they turn like black. And I'm like, oh, my God, what's going on? And, uh, and then a couple of days later, they're not even registering anymore. And I'm like, I don't know what that was. And so it turns out as you get seriously keto adapted, you stop spilling any ketones into your urine. So I got into ketosis really quick and then adapted so fast, I didn't even put them in the urine anymore. So, you know, somebody told me about this. So I started getting blood markers and I'm like, my God, I'm in like ketosis all day. And then I'm eating carbs at night and I'm tracking this. And I'm like, wow, this stuff like, Throws you into ketosis. Wow. And so why I did it was because I wanted to be able to fat adapt much faster. And how do I do it? All right. So what gets activated when you carb restrict or when you exercise enough is that you burn up your available ATP from the carbs that you have around and you build up AMP. So ATP loses a phosphate, becomes ADP adenosine diphosphate, then becomes adenosine monophosphate. And that sticks into something called the AMP kinase. And AMP kinase sounds the signal to get more energy into the system. And that's reaching in and mobilizing glycogen, upregulating glucose transporters, and going into your fat, turning up lipolysis, and bringing the fats to the liver and making ketones out of it. So that's what happens 
when you carb restrict or when you water fast or on smaller scales when you intermittent fast. But it turns out AMP kinase uh, has a couple of ways to activate it. And some are it's called the threonine-172 residue. And then there's this other calcium MKK. So there's three areas to hit APK to speed it up. And just the fasting and carb restriction is like a 10x increase. But if you hit these others, it goes to a 1,000x increase in AMPK activity. And one of those targets is where metformin hits. And that's why metformin, you know, some people are like, oh, pharmaceutical, bad. All the anti-aging people are all like, metformin, great. Wonderful stuff. Because when you ambic activate, you stimulate your body to burn on multiple pathways at once. You don't actually have to go down to a sugar of blood sugar of 70 before it's activated. You can be running, making ketones or burning ketones and having your sugar at 100. So you can actually work multiple metabolic pathways at once. And I was talking to some PhDs from Oxford University over in Europe that all work on ketosis and Alzheimer's, and they make ketone products, exogenous ketones for people with Alzheimer's, because the brain goes into insulin resistance and then can't burn sugar, and that's one kind of Alzheimer's. It's called type 3 diabetes, and the ketones are the only other source of energy. They can't do beta oxidation. They can't do all kinds of things. It's only glucose or ketones. And so ketones are really good for the brain. But these guys were like, oh, yeah, looking at your data, if you're activating in all these different ways, you're probably doing the gold standard. You're burning carbs and ketones at the same time. I cannot express how much like my brain is um, upside down right now because it's like we don't usually have easy buttons and we want to be careful with easy buttons sometimes. Right. But I'm like, what? what? That's possible. That's a possibility. This is real. And it came from boredom, which I'm pretty sure most things come out of boredom, right? Like I'm pretty sure they invented. It came out of shame and humiliation. Yeah. A little bit of spite. All right. I was going to give you like more of the upper hand. It's going to give you the upper hand out of boredom. Cause when you're talking about him, he was like, Oh, I'm interested in mTOR and whatever at this time. And I'm like, that's what we do. We just kind of get like, Oh, I got that done. So now I'm just going to like challenge my brain with something new. So now I'm into this. And you know, like, it's funny because I think like people follow Joel Mercola, right? Like depending on when you follow them, you're going to get totally different news, right? And that's just how life is, right? It's like, they're truly just bored with the current thing. And they're like, hey, let's learn about this new thing. So now my brain is kind of blown. I want to know what is in it again that turns on this AMP kinase because you went through it quickly. And like, I'm wrapping my brain around it because in 2017, I worked for a fasting program. I mean, like I'm familiar with the work that it takes to do this the typical way, right? So like, this is why my brain is like, what? Okay. So tell me what's in it again and tell me how you've used it on yourself. I mean, you told me a little bit, but like you made this thing and now it's on the market and what's your intention? Like, how do you hope people apply it and use it? Yeah. So what's in it? You got berberine and that was known as, you know, nature's metformin, very good blood sugar control. Mm -hmm. Resveratrol was known as the fasting mimetic. You know, because of what happens during fasting, you know, the ampic activation and resveratrol is an ampic activator and a sirtuin activator. So it's got some longevity aspects to it, but those longevity aspects relate to mitochondria and metabolism. Mm-hmm. Silymarin, I didn't even say that before because I was just rattling them off really quick. Silymarin mm-hmm. is known for detox, but a lot of the ways that it works on your livers through ampic and sirtuin activation, quercetin also 
in this same vein of AMPK activators. Most good phytonutrients are AMPK activators, which is mm. one of the ways that the plant-based diet can clean up your metabolism and help mm. you lose weight. Doesn't mean you got to be vegan. You just plant-rich. You know, I just interviewed Mark Hyman. He's got his vegan diet and he says plant-rich versus plant-based. So plant-rich diets do this. Right. Are you laughing at the pegan diet? Yeah, I'm laughing at that. I know. No. I was like, Mark. And he's like, well, it's tongue in cheek, you know? Yeah. Right. Paleo vegan, you know? It's actually confusing. It sounds like, uh, yeah, anyway, keep going. Pagan. It's a pagan diet. Or you're confused. Or yeah, like, just, it is, I, I literally have no idea what you're trying to tell me when you say that, but it's just. When like, you say pegan diet, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. Exactly. But the book's great. You know, and, and it covers a lot of great stuff. And we talked about regenerative agriculture and stuff. And anyways, you know, so Creston and then DIM, I was just trying to stack all these things that I normally use that are good AMPK activators together in one particle. So that was also sort of a watershed for how we make the products. I can make you, here's a nanoparticle of berberine. Here's one of resveratrol. Here's one of Creston. And you're taking six teaspoons of stuff to get to something. Then I learned how to get them all into one particle without interfering with one another. So I could get much more activation all at one shot. And some of them hit from different angles. Bearbrain has a slightly different mechanism of activation than does the Christian resveratrol. So you get enough of these different angles all at once and whoom, it's activated like you've just fasted. It's like fasting in a teaspoon. Did you say there was cinnamon in it too before? Yeah, there's some cinnamon, and cinnamon's a good one there, but, you know, it's as much of a flavor modifier to hide the berberine as it mm. is an active. I won't do this with every ingredient, but with berberine, since I've got you, like sometimes colleagues and I discuss why does berberine work well for blood sugar? Is it because people have such funky gut microbiota sometimes that, and this is probably we can only surmise, right? I don't know. Maybe we can't. Maybe you know more than I do on this, I'm sure. But if people are taking berberine, it's good for blood sugar is one of the mechanisms maybe because it's having an influence on microbiota potentially. Well, it definitely could, but it's not in this case because berberine, when you take capsules, most of it goes through your GI mm -hmm. and is not absorbed where it is having a distinct effect on the microbiota. And there's some receptors in the GI that it's acting on. It's kind of like, how does curcumin work when it's barely absorbed? A lot of that mm -hmm. is GI-based mechanisms. Mm -hmm. uh, but here, we're bypassing those and getting them into the blood. So it's working on receptors in the blood. And there, it's a very good AMPK activator. And I think so... This is something we're trying to tease out over time, like NRF2 activators. Why are some better on glutathione transferase, some on UGB glucuronosyl transferase? These are secondary modulating effects. So berberine is a good AMPK activator, but it holds down blood sugar more than resveratrol. So it seems to act more on the glucose transporters and down-regulating the kind of inflammation that gives us insulin resistance. So insulin resistance, a lot of that is free radical damage because the insulin is a dithiol and the receptors are a dithiol and those are very oxygen sensitive. And so free radicals damage the receptors so that the insulin can't dock to the receptor and the sugar can't be brought in. So the berberine must have these secondary effects on that insulin receptor and the glucose transporters that's independent of its AMPK activation or bundled with it, but focuses more on that then does like Christin and resveratrol. So I think a lot of it is cellular, but why does it work so well compared to these others? We don't exactly know, but part of it may be that. G when did G this I come think. out? What? When did this product come out? When did you develop oh, this? 
like two years ago and it just it didn't succeed like we thought because no one knows what it is what and the keto people were like i like to work for my ketosis you know and the doctors who wanted it for cardiometabolic problems were like oh that's a diet product so we still sell keto before six but then we relabeled it as ampk charge and now all the doctors buy it Oh, and what so were you too good to be true? And so people don't, that's how it, I feel right now. I'm like, my mind I is blown. I have more cardiometabolic fitness, a much more immediate fat adaptation and get all those benefits of ketosis without having to have such a restrictive diet. And it was like, I released it at, or at least I had it at one of those bulletproof labs shows. And I was with Asprey and he was like, Oh, great. So we can be keto by day and then take carbs at night so we sleep better because he had gotten into his carb face. Like Joe almost killed himself mTOR blocking. You know, he was like gaunt. Like, yeah. I'm like, Joe, you look like shit. You're gray and you look sarcopenic. You look cachexic. He's like, no, I'm so healthy. And then he's like, okay, maybe I went too far. And then I see him when he made, by the time he made fun of me, he looked great, you know, because he'd stopped doing that. He'd only do that for like four days and then three days he'd be eating complex carbs, you know, because you need mTOR forward, especially as we get old. Or we're just going to waste away. And so most of these guys figure out that there's this rhythm here. And so this product's allowing you to have a more deep rhythm. I'm going to be in ketosis now and I'm going to eat a sweet potato for dinner. I am dying. How are you? This is like nuts. Are you using this regularly or you just kind of use it sometimes or you just used it to show Joe what? Oh, I show him and I used it extensively for a long time. Now I come back and forth with it. I've been doing a lot of exosomes and growth therapies. And so I'll put it away when I do that. So I can go mTOR forward and I'll take, you know, mTOR forward stuff and more carbs. And I'll do that after the exosome injections for a couple of weeks. And then I'll go back to using AMPK charge. And I'll generally use that, you know, about three, four days a week. Mm. You know, you should use it every day and do the carbs at night, but I just like to hit those triggers a couple of times and then let them soften up. Yeah. Has your son used it? Yeah, we use it. He hates the taste, but whenever his blood sugar is out of control, do that. You know, it's type one, so you're not going to reverse anything. Mm -hmm. And so when his blood sugar starts growing any inflammatory stuff, we give him that in CBD and that kind of like brings him back on track. And then that's all I needed to blow my mind today. (laughs) <laughs> mark check mark i thought my mind was really blown i was doing some circadian rhythm research i thought that was really interesting but this is a totally different universe of interesting so whew, all right well it's kind of hard to follow with any questions after that but i have a couple one of them is about one of your other products and then the other one is i this last year has been a pain in the ass for getting supplements as a practitioner for clients. And so I'm curious about how COVID impacted your ability to source and create products last year. Massively. You know, first there was this huge run on vitamin C and we just had to scour the globe to get our sources of vitamin C in and our elderberry. We had just tons and tons. I think I had 20 tons of vitamin C in my warehouse at one point, like literally. And so that was really challenging. Then all of a sudden you can't get bottles. You can't get all these things that are made in China. You know, so much of our packaging is made there and they just shut down whole swaths of China to deal with this. So that got weird. Laboratory supplies got weird. And so it was a constant sourcing nightmare and keep everything in stock. And then you had this massive shift in the practitioner base and how they do things. You know, they come to you, buy stock and then sell to the patients. 
they all shifted to, you know, Relevate and Fullscript, uh, you know, all of the distributor stuff. So our business shifted heavily. Distributor business that did scripting doubled last year while practitioner, you know, felt an impact from there and just grew a little bit. So there was a big change. And then there was doctors that just went out of business, but there was a big change in how the practitioners get supplements to their patients. And we weren't really equipped for real scripting ourselves. So we just worked heavily with natural partners and Emerson to get that all done. Yeah. No one wants to go to your website and buy your stuff from 10 websites. Yeah. <laughs> just so you know. So it's a good thing, even though it's not fun for you because it takes more of your cut, which I like yeah. to know. I'm jealous of the podcast, you know, why stuff works or whatever. You know what I mean? I'm like, I like to know how it works on the backside. Last question, yeah. which is kind of unrelated to our life. But I mean, this conversation went kind of, it kind of did a 180 a little bit there. At the <laughs> end. But you know, you've got some binders and I want to talk about this conversation I'm kind of in this right now, bioactive carbon versus charcoal from a binder perspective, because, you know, there might be a company who thinks that they've got it down with this bioactive carbon. But I always think I always used to tell people, like, there's a few companies that I think are really doing cool things. And you were on my short list of that. But you guys are doing charcoal binders. So talk to us. Tell us about binders quick. Oh, microbe formulas. Yeah. They really like to put the same old thing in a capsule and call it something very different. They do that a lot, uh, actually, yeah. They do that a lot, you know. Oh, here's this new anti-parasitic that's been used for 5,000 years. Bioactive carbon. My guess is, because somebody brought this up to me before, my guess is that my guess is that bioactive carbon is humic acid. It is. Yeah. Uh, humic and fallback. That's what's on the label. Yeah. So and then they mix it up with other things and call it different binders. Yeah. It's another carbon source. Activated carbon has been used forever as a binder because it has massive surface area and massive adsorptive capacity. You know, so I don't believe that these, you know, these guys talk a lot of stuff, but I don't believe that they've gone out and measured that humic acid absorbs more than these others. Now, Having a couple different kinds of carbon in your mix is better because some will be better on smaller molecules and some will be better on bigger molecules. The way we deal with that is that we have multiple different binders in there. So we have zeolite, we have activated carbon, we have chitazan, and then we have some IMD, our specific proprietary metal binder in there. It's thiols on a little silica. And then we have some fiber sources, uh, acacia gum and some aloe. So each one of those binders has different things that it binds. And so it's got this broad swath of absorption. And then I also recently put in pectazol because that has activities on the immune system and the GI. And I'm looking at other carbon sources to put in there just to broaden out how many things all these binders can get. You know, you just said something that when we're saying activated charcoal, we mean activated carbon. It's like the same thing. Same. So their selling point is that you can take it away from food. Should Wait, you take the point of the bioactive? Mm-hmm. So you they can, can take, take it, it away from food or with No, you food? take it with food and supplements. Oh. But then the other conversation. Yeah, if you do, then it's not much of a binder. Mm. So that's the or whole. Or you would be able to take it with food and supplements. Right. And so then the other conversation that gets tossed around, and you would know this, is people talk about 
microbials that they use versus binders being positively and negatively charged. And so does it matter if you take them very far away? You know, one of the negatives about binders that it's just a pain to take, right? Because you have to take it away from other things. Yeah, but that means it's actually a binder. You know, it's just what it is. And then there was this, oh, the positive and the negative binders all clash together and bind to one another. That's not true. That's true of dissolved things. They may or may not come together as positive and negative and precipitate out like calcium and sulfate are positive and negative. They come together and precipitate out. For these particles that are suspended in water, you have these massive, like if you went down to this, you know, micrometer, nanometer scale, you'd see these massive chunky boulders and there's like little point charges of negative on one and another other massive boulder and there's little point charges of positive. Are these boulders going to like line up together and hit each other and neutralize each other and they're done? It's just not a possibility. There'll be hydration spheres, layers of water around it. This is just bullshit that people come up with in their heads because they don't know how to think on a chemical level, and they definitely don't know how to think on an aqueous level. You know, my PhD was aquatic chemistry. One of my specialties was humic chemistry at one point. This was all mercury and other things, how behave as dissolved, as complex with things on a particulate, how these things interact and stuff. And there, like your brains, it's like a beautiful mind, and you're down in there thinking about this stuff. And these people aren't thinking that way. Got it. I'm glad I asked you. I wanted to talk about it because it was like, wait a second, this is the only place marketing like this. And you have these other binders and it's got very different things in there. And I don't and know. And that stuff like cheap as dirt, you know, I can get it. Mm. It's very expensive. I might put humic acid. I mean, humic, there's, there's some reason. Fulvic, you know, they like for different reasons. And none of that's ever really been proven out. It's supposed to increase cellular uptake and this and that. But nobody has any data on it or knows why it works. And some of these things like fulvics, I see a lot of kidney stress from fulvics. Hmm, interesting. And they act like it's one molecule. That's the other thing. Oh, it's fulvic acid. No, here's what fulvic and humic acid is. If I take some dark brown soil and put 5% sodium hydroxide and drip it through the soil column, this black brown liquid's going to come out. And that's a mixture of lots of different things like tons of different compounds that have been formed by the micro breaking down all this organic matter. Now, if I add acid and I go all the way down to pH 1, whole bunch of it, big molecules, which now lose charge as you protonate these negative oxygen groups called carboxyls, they all become neutral. And this thing goes and falls down. Everything that fell down is called humic acid. And everything that's still in solution is called fulvic acid. There's tons of different shit in both. They act like it's one thing. It's not one thing. It's tons of stuff. Everything that's state soluble is called fulvic. Is it all good for you? How do you know? Right. Awesome. Perfect. Man, talk about a no BS conversation about delivery sources and then throwing us for a loop talking about uh, AMPK, which I didn't know we were going to go to today. We had a nice conversation about choline <laughs> and TMAO, which is wonderful. Importantly, yeah. Chronic inflammation is a domino effect and basically everything else builds up and then you're kind of a mess. And so just undo yourself. It's an onion. So just be patient and detoxes is a good friend. So many things and binders. So Dr. Shade, if people don't know anything about you, where can they find stuff online? 
Yeah, quicksilverscientific.com. There's a professional site and a, a consumer site. You'll go to the consumer. If you're a professional and have an account, you'll go through to the professional. The professional's got more education, but there's still a fair amount on the consumer site. There's also a YouTube, Quicksilver Scientific YouTube channel. And there's also my personal website, drchrisshade.com, and that has this interview and many interviews that are taken of me and podcast interviews that I'm doing myself with other people. And there'll be a lot of other video content on there. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on today. This is a fun way to end a Friday. And now I have my work cut out for me on some experiments that I need to go run on myself and others. So thanks so much. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.